So welcome everyone, we're really glad to have you here and thank you for joining us for tonight's session on the public practice of the Abrahamic religions. So I'm David Hempton, the Dean of the um, Harvard Divinity School and I'd like, by, I'd like to begin by extending uh, gratitude and a very warm welcome on behalf of uh, all of us to our panelists, um, Huda Apu Arkob, um, Joseph uh, Montville, and Stephanie Saldana, thank you so much for joining us and giving up your time. We're really looking forward to what you have to say to us. We'd also like to extend our thanks to tonight's chair, Professor Charles Stang of the Divinity School, um, and to the co-sponsors of this special Religions and Practice of the Peace Colloquium session, the Center for the Study of World Religions at the Divinity School, and the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue with whom we're really delighted to be collaborating. So welcome all of you who have been at the conference last night and all day today, and thank you for your stamina and your uh, intellectual energy. I stand in awe. Um, as, all, as always, we'd also like to express our appreciation to RPP's general supporters, including Karen Vickers-Budney and Al Budney, uh, for helping to make these and other RPP activities possible. We've got a great colloquium series planned for this semester and next, and we do depend on those who uh, help us in, uh, in all ways. And I'm very grateful also to the staff of the Center for the Study of World Religions and the RPP, all the uh, student workers and staff workers, thank you so much for all that you've done to make this event possible. Um, so we're very grateful to all of you. Uh, let's give them just a little hand for what they do. In religions and the practice of peace, the religious, spiritual, and cultural resources that members of our human family bring to relationships and endeavors in our diverse and complex world, and how these can be leveraged to forge, uh, to foster cooperation and shared flourishing, is really our central question. In our One Harvard Sustainable Peace Initiative, we're exploring with faculty, students, and alums across disciplines right across the university and with friends and colleagues around the globe, how leadership, collaboration, and creativity that bridges across divides and between the academy and communities can foster a more humane and harmonious world. So it's a big aspiration. The public practice of the Abrahamic religions is of major relevance to these questions, so we're excited for this opportunity to hear from our distinguished panelists on this very topic. So without further ado, I'm now just going to introduce uh, my colleague and friend Charles Stang, uh, Professor of uh, Early Christian Thought and the Director uh, of the Center for the Study of World Religions at the Divinity School. Um, Charlie, as we call him, Charlie Stang, joined the Faculty of Divinity in 2008. His research and teaching focus on the history and theology of Christianity in late antiquity, especially Eastern varieties of Christianity. More specifically, he is interested in the development of asceticism, monasticism, and mysticism in Eastern Christianity. His most recent book, Our Divine Double, was published in 2016 by Harvard University Press. And he's the author of, and co-author or editor of many other books as well. Um, Professor Stang's current projects include a book on the problem of evil in Christianity and Neoplatonism entitled Beyond God and Evil to be published by Harvard University Press, and a new edition and translation of Evagrius of Pontus's Gnostic Trilogy. Ow. 
um, to be published by Oxford University Press. His interests also include ancient philosophy, especially Neoplatonism, the Syriac Christian tradition, especially the spread of the East Syrian tradition along the Silk Road, religions of the late antique Mediterranean, especially uh, Manichaeism, and modern continental philosophy and theology. It's a, it's a good string of interests. Uh, so he became the uh, director of the Center for the Study of World Religions in 2017 and has been doing a wonderful job in that center. So Charlie, please uh, come and introduce our panelists. Thank you. Thank you, David, and thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, it's a great pleasure for us to uh, collaborate with the Religions uh, Practices of Peace Colloquium, and especially uh, thank you, Liz Lee Hood, for all your help in putting this on. For those of you who were with us last night uh, for the first public portion of this uh, conference, uh, you may recall that I laid out three tracks um, that uh, on which the, uh, the study of the Abrahamic religions has uh, followed the uh, the academic study of religion, interfaith dialogue, and then what we're calling the public practice of religion. I'm sorry, the public practice of the Abrahamic religions, and that's what we're here to focus on tonight. And what we mean by that is the increasing um, uh, the increasing uh, citation of the Abrahamic as a category to do social and political work in the world. And the three people to my left are uh, perfect representatives of that, although I think each in their own turn will speak to the um, strengths and liabilities of the category of the Abrahamic in their own work. Um, so I'm gonna be very brief in my introductions because I want uh, to give most time to our panelists and I also want to reserve time for questions which Unfortunately, we did not have time for last night, so I'm hoping uh, to really um, reserve a good amount of time to that. Uh, I will introduce our three, and then the panelists will take to the podium to give their presentations, and then I'll return to the podium to call on folks for questions, which our panelists will then answer from their uh, seats uh, at the table. So, <clears throat> let me first introduce my very dear friend, Stephanie Saldana. Stephanie grew up in Texas and received a BA from Middlebury College and an MTS from Harvard Divinity School. Uh, and we overlapped here for two years, which is how we became such close friends. Uh, we studied Arabic together. She focused here on the relationship between Islam and Christianity. In 2004, after graduating from Harvard Divinity School, she went to Damascus uh, to study the Prophet Jesus in Islam uh, on a Fulbright scholarship, where she worked with both Muslim and Christian leaders engaged in dialogue. Stephanie has written two books, The Bread of Angels, about her time in Syria, and A Country Between, about her time living in East Jerusalem. She's also taught at Al-Quds Bard College of Arts and Sciences. She's the founder of Mosaic Stories, an ongoing project to preserve the threatened cultural heritage of the Middle East through research and storytelling. She currently writes and lectures about refugees, disappearing diversity in the Middle East, and the challenges of preserving intangible cultural heritage in Iraq and Syria. 
If you keep a keen eye on the New York Times op-ed page, you may see Stephanie's uh, name. Huda Abu Arkub, our second presenter, is the regional director of the Alliance for Middle Eastern Peace, or ALMEP, a network of civil society organizations working in conflict resolution, development, and coexistence in the Middle East among Israelis, Palestinians, Arabs, and Jews. She has years of experience in conflict resolution, NGO leadership, and social change education and activism, as well as a lifelong commitment to building strong people-to-people Israeli-Palestinian relations. She's well-known speaker on issues related to Middle Eastern politics and especially the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Welcome, Huda. Thank you for coming such a long distance to join us. And finally, our third presenter this evening is Joseph Montville, who is the director of the program on healing historical memory and chair of the Center for World Religions, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution in the School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University. He's also a senior associate and chair of the Goldezer Prize Committee in the study of the uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim relations at Merrimack College in North Andover, Massachusetts. He is also the director of the Abrahamic Family Reunion, the Esalen Institute project to promote Muslim, Christian, Jewish reconciliation. And I should add on that note of the Abrahamic Family Reunion, the Esalen Institute, that we are all dearly missing Dulcie Murphy this evening. Dulcie was supposed to be chairing this session. Uh, Dulcie's done incredible work um, over the years with this um, Abrahamic Family Reunion project. Dulcie sadly suffered an injury recently doing more track two diplomacy in Russia. She uh, uh, so she had to return to San Francisco for treatment, but she's doing fine. Uh, but she sends her best, and we dearly miss her. So please join me in welcoming our three panelists. First of all, Stephanie Saldana. So much for having me here today. To be in this room speaking about Abraham feels like coming full circle. Fifteen years ago when I was a student here at Harvard Divinity School, I met William Urey at the Program on Global Negotiation. He was looking for researchers who would help him explore the feasibility of bringing to life what at the time seemed like a far-fetched dream a long-distance walking path in the Middle East in the footsteps of Abraham, called the Abraham Path. The hope was that the path would traverse the Middle East from Abraham's birthplace in Ur to his tomb in Hebron, bringing people together through the frame of a shared story. I eagerly signed on, scoured maps, exploring Abrahamic narratives, trying to imagine what an Abraham Path might look like. Would it start in Ur of the Chaldees, in present-day Iraq, or in San Lurfa in southeastern Turkey? Both places claim to be the birthplace of Abraham. Would it extend to Saudi Arabia to honor the Islamic narrative? 
The project was fascinating in part because it forced one to consider the complexities of the Abrahamic narratives and their different interpretations. They couldn't be avoided because we actually had to make concrete decisions about where we were going to walk. This slide shows what in 2006 was an early idea of what the path might look like. As you can see, the black were the actual route and the dotted lines were hopes for the future, we can say. Um, in the following years, I moved to the Middle East, which would turn out to be where I stayed until today, and I followed the project sometimes closely, other times from a distance. Now, today, the great legacy of the Abraham path is the Masar Ibrahim al-Khalil, a long-distance walking path in Palestine, now fully independent and run by Palestinians, who use the trail for tourism and to shift the narrative of the region away from conflict and towards hospitality. And yet, it was also a great instructor in limitations, and many people in the region resisted using the connection with Abraham. Beginning in 2011, with the outbreak of the war in Syria and later the rise of the Islamic State, the areas of Iraq, southern Turkey, and Syria where tradition says that Abraham walked were impossible to walk in. Indeed, they became some of the most dangerous places in the world. Over the years I'd lived in the Middle East, I'd had the opportunity to see how the notion of Abrahamic dialogue, as we often call it, had found a place. In addition to the Abraham path, I'd been close to Father Paolo de Lolio, the founder of a monastery in Syria called Der Mar Musa, whose monastic community was called the community of Al-Khalil, or Abraham, the friend of God. The community was engaged in Muslim-Christian dialogue and made a vow of Abrahamic hospitality who all who, to all who came, honoring the tradition of Abraham welcoming the angels, a story held sacred by Muslims, Christians, and Jews. As such, it became a Christian monastery welcoming thousands of Muslims a year. These are photos by my friend Cecile Massey. You can see here they're preparing for Good Friday service, and this is a Muslim who is doing the, his prayers in conjunction. Well, actually, just go back. Many of those I admire have used the term Abrahamic successfully in the Middle East, not focusing on Abraham as a category of belonging, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, but one as Abraham as a model of hospitality. And yet, the fact remains that when we hear Abrahamic dialogue in the Middle East, where I work, it has come to represent dialogue between Muslims, Christians, and Jews, the so-called Abrahamic faiths. It's precisely because I've spent, been so close to movements associated with Abraham that I have heard so many misgivings about the use of Abraham. It's long overdue that we're honest about this. Women, for example, many who have spent their entire lives struggling in patriarchal systems, not only in the Middle East, but around the world, are often less than eager to embrace a category that reinforces patriarchy. Citizens at countries in war with Israel often worry, especially Syrians, that any dialogue or project deemed Abrahamic will imply that they are working with Israel 
which puts them in danger to their safety. In addition, many people in the region feel that the problems there are largely political, and to imply that they can be solved through religious dialogue, which often happens when other countries get involved, is not only to misunderstand the problems, but to make them worse. All of these are worth considering, but I'm not here to focus on them. Instead, the resistance to Abrahamic dialogue that has concerned me most is that of bewilderment, or what I would call the meh. <laughs> Many people I know simply don't care about Abraham much. They don't put him at the center of their identity or their faith. They don't give him regular thought in their daily lives. For these individuals, and I'll be honest, I place myself among them, the category Abrahamic feels false, arbitrary, constructed, and so can hardly be a foundation for solving deep conflicts. As we know in the Middle East, any relationships which are not built on what is at the core of our identity might work during peacetime, but they almost always fall apart during war. Two years ago, I approached the Abraham Path with an idea to launch a storytelling project in the Middle East, engaging refugees from Iraq and Syria, traveling all over the world. But I had two things. One, I didn't want to be bound to the physical path. I wanted to be able to follow them all over the world. And two, the more I thought about it, I didn't want to use the category Abrahamic anymore. War and exile are not only moments of great crisis for communities, but moments of self-defining. I didn't want the baggage of a category that presupposed what communities cared about. I wanted to invite them to tell me themselves. My research is messy, but at the heart of it is going to communities and actually asking them to tell me what they care most about. Over the last two years, I've concentrated on, on meeting refugees and migrants from northern Iraq, the area we often refer to as the Nineveh Plains in Mosul, and the length and breadth of Syria, following them to 10 countries around the world. I call the project the mosaic stories, and I don't mean mosaic the way Professor Levinson referred to it last night as related to Moses, but mosaic in terms of an actual object. My friend in home, Syria, told me that she used the term cultural mosaic to refer to the diverse homes in which she grew up with Sunni Muslims, Alawites, and diverse Christians. A mosaic can have thousands of pieces, she explained to me. But if even one is missing, the picture is incomplete. More than giving the title to my work, the notion of cultural mosaic as opposed to Abrahamic describes diversity in the Middle East in a more honest way. In my experience, people don't think of themselves as Muslims, Christians, and Jews, but as thousands of communities, based on village, on language, on family, on religion, even shared trauma. It also alerted me to the anxiety of smaller groups in the region who have been left out of our conversations, Mandeans, Yazidis, Baha'is, and Druze, to name a few, an essential part of the cultural fabric, but nearly almost always forgotten when we talk about Abrahamic faith. In 2016, I met Hannah Slewa Mosiki, a refugee from Karakosh, a city of some 44,000 
Syriac-speaking Christians near Mosul, Iraq, who fled in August of 2014 as the Islamic State invaded her city. When I asked her if she'd taken anything with her, she said, no, there just wasn't enough time. But when she was in exile and knew that she wasn't going back again, she made a decision. She sewed the story of her city into a dress. This dress, called a shawl, was soon apparent to me was not a dress at all. It was a map. And by looking at it, we can get some clues to the complex way in which she identifies herself. Here's the name of her city, Bakhdeda in Syriac. Here is her name in Arabic, which she also speaks because it's close to Mosul. Here are some of the churches of the city which were ransacked by the Islamic State, the wedding dances, her home, her gardens. This here is a line. These lines represent the diversity of her area. And this line, which is not very colorful, represents her exile. She says, life will never be as colorful as it was before, but it will continue. I've spent two years following Hannah's dress, matching things in it with archival photos from refugee cell phones. and eventually traveling to the city myself. It's her home. Over time, I came to think of her dress as a way of understanding the complexity of how we define ourselves. I met many women from the same village with costumes cut of the same cloth. But even then, no two people were the same. Just north, this is Bakhdeda or Karakosh here. Just north of Karakosh is Lalish, the holiest site in the world for Yazidis. An ancient monotheistic religious minority that exists mostly in northern Iraq, but also in Syria and southeastern Turkey, where the landscape is dotted with their holy shrines. It seems dishonest here to state with confidence what Yazidis believe. It's a very secretive faith and their beliefs are reserved for only a select few. Most Yazidis visit their holy shrines, keep their holidays, pray and marry within their faith. They speak of the holiness of bread, pray towards the sun, and believe deeply in a God that writes everything. They are often referred to as the followers of the peacock angel. Unfortunately, they are also often referred to as devil worshipers to protect themselves they live in the remote mountains of Sinjar, on the border between Iraq and Syria. I spent the last four months following a family that survived the genocide on Mount Sinjar to Germany. They still fear for their lives and their families, so I have no photos and I can give you no names. As I've come to know them, I expected that what they would be trying to save was their faith, which is in danger of becoming extinct. They are, but they talk about it through the lens of saving family. In the Yazidi faith, there's no conversion, and you must have two Yazidi parents. Saving family is about saving, is about love, but it's also about survival. As a boy, I will call Qasim, tells me, my grandfather always said, 
All that matters is family. If you have nothing but your family, you're a wealthy man. Just an hour away in Al-Kosh, visited the tomb of Nevi Nahum, holy to Jews, but also venerated by Christians, Muslims, and Yazidis. Today, all of the Jews from the area are gone, the Christians are leaving, the Yazidis are leaving too, but I've heard the stories of the tomb from the Jews who carried them with them when they immigrated to Israel in the 1950s. Last week, I went to pray in Arab Yom Kippur in Jerusalem with the descendants of those who visited the shrine, who keep their liturgy arrive in Nachlo, Jerusalem. Here are the pictures of the rabbis of Kurdistan on the walls of Jerusalem. If you cross the border here, just into Syria, you'll arrive in Hasake, a largely Kurdish city. I met these musicians, Farhad Faisal and Hosan Payal, in Istanbul, where they're trying to keep their Kurdish stories alive through their music. They explained that because they didn't learn about Kurdish history in school in Arab nationalist Syria, it was up to musicians to pass stories of their ancestors from one generation to another. Farhad said, when I dreamt I would dream in Kurdish, and that's when I began to understand that language is a kind of music, and I understood that our culture is contained in our language. So this is a song about a Kurdish boy who falls in love with a Yazidi girl. <laughs> I expected them to say that they were saving their music or even their stories, and they were. But Farhad told me, what we're doing is that we're saving joy. And I wish I had time to tell you about the chefs from Aleppo saving their famous food, <laughs> the sword dancers of Homs, who I found in the Zaatari refugee camp, saving their sword dancing. In the two years I've been working, I have heard a reference to Abraham exactly once. <laughs> From the Jews of Zacho, living in Jerusalem, who referred to the, the, the heritage of Abraham. To put that in contrast, I can't tell you how many times I've heard about the importance of jasmine, or about kube or kibbe, a famous dish mixed with meat and of meat and bulgur, loved as it is by Muslims, Christians, Jews, Yazidis, and anyone else lucky enough to experience its deliciousness. In dialogue, we often assume that what we have in common is what will connect us to one another. But categories flatten us. As a practitioner whose job is to listen and tell stories, I've discovered that when someone tells a story of what is most unique to themselves, what is only theirs, that's what connects them to others. Maybe what we have in common is not a common ancestor in Abraham. Perhaps what we have in common is that each one of us is unique. I often think of a Lebanese professor who will go unnamed, who was here when I was here, and turned to me one day and said, Abrahamic dialogue? Pff, isn't it enough that we're all ancestors of Adam? <laughs> that we're all human beings? 
I agree that at this point, when the sheer loss of life has become staggering, that it is perhaps time to shift from a dialogue of fraternity to one of humanity. We need to restore the value of human life, to promote the idea that every human being is unique and irreplaceable. To be very, very blunt, and I apologize, after years of Abrahamic dialogue, we can say this for certain. Seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Abraham has not stopped us from killing one another. In this landscape of violence, telling and listening to stories is a form of repair. My friendship with Yazidis has been a real challenge. As many of you know, in 2014, they suffered a genocide under the Islamic State, being accused of being pagans and devil worshippers. Thousands were killed, thousands taken into slavery. In the last two years, I've learned how widespread this belief is in the Middle East. Recently, when I was speaking about my work in Arabic, two, some Christians told me, oh, those Yazidis, they have no religion. I wonder if all of us who work in the Abrahamic categories, myself included, are not in part to blame. By pushing an Abrahamic narrative that focuses on Abraham as the common ancestor of Muslims, Christians, and Jews, have we participated in creating an environment of intolerance in the Middle East that deems these three Abrahamic religions as normal and permissible and participates in placing other religions on the margins and in extreme cases creates the conditions that allow for genocide? I don't have the answer, but in this moment, when Yazidis, Druze, and Mandeans have all been specifically targeted, we're obliged to ask the question. Before, we could argue that the numbers of the faithful in the Middle East who were not Abrahamic were small enough to justify leaving them out of our categories. Now we see the devastating consequences of that logic. And it's not only the Middle East. Yazidis flee to Europe, where there they're left out of conversations of dialogue, end-of-life practices, and they have no allies because people have not been thought to think of them as part of their communities. We must be vigilant that the Abrahamic category does not put blinders on us, placing people and communities out of our circle of belonging. If we are to keep the Abrahamic category, then we must ask ourselves in the name of Abrahamic hospitality who we have not invited to the table. Women, minorities, those who have escaped genocide, and they must not be given a token place, but the place of honor. We cannot give them the place of honor without giving them a say in defining our categories. I might suggest then that it is Abrahamic hospitality that requires that we be willing to give everything up, perhaps sometimes even the category of Abraham, if that means moving forward. If I could do it again, I wouldn't say mosaic stories. The, most, the term mosaic captures the reality of the Middle East, but also its tragedy. Thousands of separate communities broken into pieces. We've forgotten that we need one another, that we're interwoven. There are hundreds of thousands dead, millions in exile, and the roads to safety are increasingly cut off. In light of this, the conversations we've come to have today are not part of an intellectual exercise. We're in a state of emergency. The question we ask is how can we find our way back to seeing the humanity in one another?
follow that, <laughs> Stephanie, but I'm, I'm really uh, honored to be uh, sharing this panel with you. My name is Huda Abarqoub, Masal Khair, Assalamu Alaikum. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna speak from a very personal place because I don't think I should or I, I must represent the Palestinians in general. I wouldn't use the we because the Palestinians are very diverse, very opinionated, and uh, they are uh, very, very um, different when it comes to the issue of Abraham the issue of the identity. To me, Abraham uh, is another narrative that should unite people, but it's actually not doing that now. And so I have issues with Abraham. Uh, although I am uh, a Muslim and I pray and I fast and I believe in Islam, and sometimes it hurts me to call the state as Islamic State, ISIS. Uh, it's, uh, it's, just, uh, it's, it's just wrong. Politically speaking, I have no affiliation. I don't believe in Fatah, Hamas. Uh, I just believe in the Palestinian people and their right to exist because the existential question is still, um, is still uh, a question in Palestine. And um, when it comes to us, it's not just the story of the Muslims in Palestine, which is what hurts me everywhere we go, especially now, especially after Abraham became a figure. Everyone thinks that uh, the Palestinians are all Muslims. We're not. I'm also a woman. I have a huge issue with the fact that the story of Abraham has been featured, but none of the women in the story including the story of him taking his son. And in the Quran, it doesn't mention the name of the son. And I really appreciate that about the text. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't go to what the mother has been going through when Abraham had the vision. Even God responded last minute to, uh, to rescue the, the, the son. And in that story, I've always seen the, the call for living for a cause rather than dying for a cause. So as, I, as a woman, I always look for women's stories in the texts, and I don't find them very often. They are in the text, but they are not in the forehead of, or in the consciousness of us, whether we are Muslims, Christians, or Jews, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm claiming that. Um, I am also, uh, I should say that I represent a very minority voice within Israel and Palestine. And I'm saying Israel because I'm working with Israelis who are not necessarily Jews uh, and not necessarily believers. Um, and some of them are not even uh, uh, from Poland or Germany. And I'm amazed of the, the diversity within Israel that uh, I've, it wasn't also in the narrative. And part of my conversation with many Israelis is that why, why, and I'm sorry again, this is gonna be hard, why the Holocaust is the only narrative when Israel is so diverse. I spoke with some young Mizrahi, uh, uh, Middle Eastern Jewish women who at some point uh, 
they would uh, leave school, go home, and if their grandparents are listening to Arabic music, they would yell at them and shut down the radio or TV, saying that this is shameful, that, and we, they don't want to belong to that culture anymore. It's the, the culture of the enemy. And, and they would do anything in the world to belong to the Holocaust story, although they, they are not white. Um, I come also from free thinking when it comes to Islam because there is this call for us in Islam all the time to rethink and think. So we have to think and we have to consider Islam as a text that speaks to the needs of its followers in any time. It should have that flexibility. Unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, so that's why we, uh, we experience a lot of extremism and we experience a lot of uh, drifting away from Islam, which is a huge alarm uh, when it comes to people in, in conflict. Most of the Palestinian youth are, um, you know, they look like Muslims. They would go to uh, the mosque and perform, oh perform prayers, etc. But in, 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 as a set of values, we don't practice Islam as a value because there is no space of redemption according to those imams who yell at us every Friday thinking that we are the reason why the world is not going right. Women, children, kids who play uh, games, uh, men who want to drink, they are the reason why we are not liberated yet. So there is no a space, a space of redemption in Islam for the youth to embrace it as part of their identity. And that's, uh, that's a, space, a place of concern for me, especially in Palestine. I work a lot with women in Palestine. And when I, uh, uh, when I bring God to the conversation, I'm not talking about dialogue now, with Israelis, with the other. I'm talking about dialogue with our others, you know, internally. And when I bring God and I, think, and I ask them to think of the first image that comes to their, my, their mind when God, Allah, is mentioned, unfortunately, most of the time, it's a man and a man who frowns, who yells, and sometimes carrying a whip. So this is also an element of survivorhood that was taken from women in Palestine, and I would believe also in many other conflict zones, when the spiritual connection that gets them to a place where they can continue and maintain resiliency is taken away from them because of the extreme religious look at God as an image. God is light. Now I... The Alliance for Middle East Peace is a network of 110 organizations that, is, um, that are working in Israel and Palestine and in Jordan. And I am on my capacity as the regional director. I work with thousands of Israelis and Palestinians who believe that dialogue internally and externally, but internally first is important, before we get to the place where we can cross the border and chase the other to talk, because we've seen that this is not working. But it, there is an important space also for the dialogue with the other. And with everything that 
the word dialogue is a bad word, just like peace in Palestine and in Israel, because it indicates that people have uh, no uh, power balance. And I'm telling you that one Palestinian voice in a room full of Israelis is enough to bring the story uh, to the forefront of the consciousness of the Israelis, the Palestinian story. But what Palestinian story? So the fragmentation also is affecting us in terms of, uh, of maintaining our sense of collective identity. The division between Hamas and Fatah is also uh, killing that prospect for a collective narrative for the Palestinians that is unifying. And again, it's in the heart of the religious narrative. So one of the things that I'm trying to work with these organizations is to bring back uh, religion as part of the solution rather than the damn, the goddamn uh, problem. <laughs> so, unfortunately, Abraham is always cursed, even if we don't mean it. But we've always said something, Abu, so we always curse at our father. And uh, for some reason, in our consciousness, it's not uh, Ibrahim. Um, these days mark the 25th anniversary of Oslo. And one of the things that affected me deeply today is watching a um, um, documentary about it. And to realize that uh, partially uh, Oslo failed miserably is because of Abraham because of the massacre that happened on the 25th of February 1994 in, uh, in the mosque, in Abraham's mosque. Two years, a year later, Rabin was assassinated. And Arafat said something very compelling at that time. He said, with the assassination of Rabin, the peace process also was assassinated. So I don't believe that our leaders are going to bring peace to us, whether they believe in Abraham or any other man figure in religion. I believe that women and youth are going to change the dynamics of the conflict, and that's why I'm in the field working with women, seeing no color, seeing no religious affiliation, seeing nothing but women who are determined to change the, uh, the dynamics. And I'm dedicated to them, and I will continue doing that. And I'm saying that I'm not a saint at all. I have my own uh, sins. But I do believe that w the world has to stop, uh, or men has to stop uh, trying to figure out other men in history and look around in their, in their neighborhood and start a very difficult conversation internally. Thank you. I've known Huda for, I think it might be 12 years. Uh, I, I frequently call her the Queen of Palestine. Uh, and you'd understand why when you see um, news uh, coverage of the, uh, the Women's March 
from Palestine into Israel and Huda up on the stage in Tel Aviv uh, being cheered by uh, Israeli men and women and Palestinians. Uh, she is uh, totally in sync with what, what, what I hope, or many of us hope in America, is the, uh, the de determination to put more and more women in charge of our daily life. So uh, she is somebody very special. Thank you. I thought, uh, I, uh, this is sound narcissistic, but I thought that uh, in 1959, I came to this campus right out of uh, graduating from Lehigh University and joined the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, and uh, I had chosen uh, Middle Eastern Studies uh, because uh, it's uh, the, uh, the Islamic uh, religion and the Arabic language had such extensive uh, uh, impact throughout the world and also because it was Harvard, and if you're you know, admitted to Harvard, you should just go. Um, that was 59 years ago. Um, and uh, in these days, now I was brought back to Cambridge uh, by, by Charlie Stang, uh, and a very interesting connection, primarily because of his connection with Michael Murphy, the co-founder of Esalen Institute, who uh, has been uh, a, a keen, who has a keen interest in the spirituality of the context of the religion of no religion. Uh, and uh, I, I just love that connection because it's very unconventional for an East Coast uh, public servant. I was in the Foreign Service, uh, but I was brought out to uh, Esalen Institute in 1980 um, after, uh, well, I was still in you know, active duty foreign service in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in the State Department uh, as Near East Division Chief. I had served uh, abroad in, uh, uh, in Iraq, that is in Baghdad and Basra, uh, then in Lebanon and Beirut, then in Libya before and after Gaddafi's arrival uh, in three different posts, one in the Green Mountains, Cyrenaica, named for Simon of Cyrene, uh, then in Benghazi <coughs> as acting consul general, and then in Tripoli. Uh, uh, I have to say that one of the, the major memories of my service uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, and my, my, I ended up in, in Rabat finally before going back to Washington, um, was the attack on our consulate in Basra on the 5th of June, 1967, when um, uh, a, a mob came down the Corniche and uh, attacked our compound. Uh, uh, we, had, we had three families. The, uh, most of us, all of us except my wife, were in the chancery, and that was not entered, but uh, two of our apartments were entered and sacked. Uh, luckily, our apartment looked like uh, the back end of one they'd already entered, so she was safe. Um, but recently, she uh, 
she told me that the memory of that attack stays with her. Um, and uh, she was also nine months pregnant. Um, we uh, went to, uh, we evacuated to Khorramshahr, because in, in those days, Iran was our Iran, and we could go there, it was our safe haven. And uh, we found an obstetrician in, in Abadan next door uh, who gave her a letter saying she was only six months pregnant so she could fly home. Uh, she fl f flew home to, from Tehran to the JFK. Uh, my mother met her, and 36 hours later, our daughter, Claire, was born. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to, I, I think there's some meaning in, in this biographical story of how I got to the concept of doing, embrace the concept of the Abrahamic family. Um, I did, uh, uh, after a year in Cairo, uh, well, after my two years here at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, I got a Fulbright to Cairo, and um, then I went to uh, Columbia and did all but a dissertation and a PhD in comparative politics. So my education is quite traditional uh, in the political science field. Um, uh, uh, and I've already gone to June 5th, which is a day that never leaves my mind. Um, I did go to, uh, I was posted to uh, Beirut to do intensive Arabic a year and a half at our Foreign Service Arabic uh, Training Center, which was in uh, our embassy in, uh, on the Corniche. Uh, it's the building that was blown up uh, in 1983. Um, and that, and that was the same year that uh, over 258 Marines were blown up at the Beirut airport by uh, what came to be Hezbollah. Um, from there, uh, from Beirut, I went to uh, uh, Libya. Uh, as I said before, Gaddafi is, uh, came to power on September 1st, 1969. Uh, uh, so my first assignment was in Beda, which was a, a beautiful little spot on, on the top of the Green Mountain. But uh, after the revolution, that was closed down, and I was sent down to Benghazi, ending up as acting consul general for a while. Uh, then I was uh, PNG'd. That's a, that's a worker's phrase for persona non grata by the revolution. Uh, they didn't like anybody that spoke Arabic. Uh, uh, but it was negotiated down to a transfer, direct transfer to Tripoli on the promise that I would never go back to Cyrenaica to raise the tribes against the revolution. And I'm, I easily agreed to that. Um, uh, after uh, a fairly conventional period of time in Tripoli, uh, I was assigned to Rabat in uh, Morocco and spent the last of my foreign, foreign service assignments abroad in Morocco and the rest of my time in the State Department, the Bureau of uh, Near East and South Asian Affairs, and then uh, later on the, the, uh, the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence uh, and, uh, and Research, which is part of the 17 uh, agency community of the intelligence community in Washington. 
Um, my, uh, my, my wife, who was my first wife, had uh, two and a half years of psychoanalysis funded by the State Department Medical Division based on a very good letter that I wrote describing our eight years abroad. And we also had a next door neighbor who was a psychoanalyst. And uh, by default, I became, uh, I, I understood what was happening to our marriage. And at the same time, I came to understand Iraqi politics. Uh, it was about identity and memory uh, and the enduring sense of injustice uh, and the burdens of history. Uh, I became a consultant to the American Psychiatric Association's Committee on Psychiatry and Foreign Affairs, <clears throat> uh, which was inspired by the success of President Jimmy Carter's great diplomatic success at Camp David uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and uh, the psychiatrists and psychoanalysts who were members of the American Psychiatric Association enthusiastically volunteered to help Egypt, Israel, and the Palestinians uh, solidify the peace process through a five-year stretch of problem-solving workshops um, that were facilitated by theory and practice, a very practical practice, uh, of helping uh, the Israelis, the Egyptians, and the Palestinians develop trusting relationships, which is not that hard to do with a small group of people. It's, but it's kind of hard to do with uh, millions of people who aren't in the workshop. And one of the greatest challenges to this psychologically sensitive work uh, in conflict analysis and conflict resolution is trying to communicate, first of all, analyze, and then communicate um, with the emotional needs of whole populations. Um, uh, Huda mentioned the Oslo agreements, and one of the uh, criticisms of the Oslo process was that it was very effective with the Israelis and, and Americans, well, with the Israelis and the, uh, the Palestinians who participated in it. They became very, very close. Uh, there's one anecdote of a, one of the Palestinians um, became very ill and was thought to be ready on, on death's door. And then um, the Israelis came to visit him and, and wept at his, at his bedside. And he revived. Uh, and so their relationship was strengthened. But there, there was no way, no theory even, uh, uh, no imagination in a way to communicate what these small groups of people who had built trust over some very intensive negotiations, how that could be communicated to meet the emotional needs of the, their, their populations. Um, after I retired uh, from the State Department, I, was, uh, uh, I joined the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, DC, to advise on a project called, uh, uh, and a project uh, to produce an edited book called Religion, the Missing Dimension of Statecraft. So that was my first step in the direction of religion and peacemaking uh, under the guidance of the director of that project. Um, and when I was at CSIS, I came to learn about uh, Muslim Spain uh, from a, a, a donor. And 
I, I came to realize, I, I was told by this donor, a woman who uh, invited uh, me and my two children uh, to a, a home that she had in Trujillo in, in Al Andalus in southern Spain, um, about how, how much Muslims love to visit Muslim Spain. Uh, there's a wonderful memory there of, of richness, including of, of extraordinary interaction between Muslims and Jews. In fact, uh, when, uh, when the, the Muslim invasion into Spain took place across the Strait of Gibraltar, it was local Jews who were their uh, scouts in uh, uh, helping the, uh, the, the troops move into uh, uh, what came to be Al-Andalus against uh, Christian armies that were falling back quickly. Um, and so the Abrahamic family concept came to me actually through this uh, experience in Al-Andalus and, and, and of memory and as a, um, a model of uh, especially uh, Muslim and Jewish interaction because uh, there were, there were constant debates. <clears throat> they, they seemed to love to debate uh, about religion, and, and, uh, but they were, uh, they, they were wholesome debates. They weren't you know, beating each other up. Um, uh, they would have meals after the debate or during the debate. Um, and uh, so the... Um, I was uh, in, invited to, to organize uh, some week-long uh, week workshops of Muslim, Christian, and Jewish uh, fundamental, on fundamentalism at Esalen Institute, where uh, Charles is uh, working and it's going back in November. Uh, and that's where the, the, um, the challenges uh, uh, with, with wonderful scholars who really knew their subject of setting out just what the uh, obstacles and the challenges of advancing the concept of uh, the Abrahamic family were. Uh, now, none of them provided us with the capacity to break through what Huda describes uh, uh, and Stephanie described as the, the political resistances, uh, the men, the incompetence, uh, uh, that, that keeps the, the, the conflict alive. But I did manage to get a good grant from the Fetzer Institute uh, that allowed me to uh, build up a network of people in the Bay Area, in LA, uh, Washington, New York, and Boston that was committed to the concept of the Abrahamic family and the concept of what I call the Abrahamic family reunion. The symbolism, by the way, was the story in Genesis of Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury their father, Abraham, in Khalil, in Hebron. Uh, as a political psychologist, I'm always looking for emotionally charged uh, activities uh, uh, to symbolize an aspiration. And the, the two brothers, estranged brothers, coming back to bury their father, Abraham, uh, I think is a very powerful uh, symbol, if we can get through all the the noise and the war and the politics. Um, so uh, I, there, I, I really just want to end this because 
I've, I'm, I'm working with a lot of projects that try to advance the concept I, that, at Esalen, um, although I, you know, I'm, an, I'm an East Coaster, but um, I've been publishing a newsletter called the Abrahamic Family Reunion for about eight years. Uh, uh, sponsored by the Institute for Citizen Diplomacy, uh, Track 2, and um, which focuses on simple uh, press reports of, of Muslim and Jewish communities and Christian communities around the country when they need help. If a, if a, uh, a, a synagogue gets, uh, uh, loses its power or, or, or its income, um, Muslims have offered the mosque to Jews for their, their prayer services on Shabbat. Um, and in a lot of other different areas of, of engagement uh, that, uh, that communicate a sense of community uh, in our country, also in, in Europe. There, there have been many cases in Europe. Um, but I don't have any illusion of, about the, the difficulty. I think our uh, two presenters, very hard-headed ladies, <laughs> Uh, uh, that there's anything easy, and you know when we look at our own government, how um, uh, how limited its capacity for imagination and success is, uh, not to mention the governments in Israel, Palestine, and, and Syria and elsewhere, uh, we're faced with a constant uh, uh, set of obstacles uh, and, resi and is resistances. But I want to note something that just occurred to me as uh, I was wrapping up my notes for this presentation, that uh, one of your former deans, the late beloved Christopher Stendhal, uh, became a friend, and I raised some money for a two-week uh, two residency at the National Cathedral's, what was then called the College of Preachers, for Christopher and uh, Rabbi Mark Gopin, who was on the faculty of my school for, uh, at George Mason, and Professor Ablaziz Sachadina, who is, uh, has an endowed chair. And the three of them had a, an Abrahamic residency uh, at the cathedral and produced some beautiful work together uh, that they were able to present on at a, a meeting that took place in the, uh, the choir area of the cathedral. And, Again, they, they, they model the possible, uh, and, and their modeling sort of keeps my energy going uh, after almost 59 years. Thank you. Thank you all for such wonderful presentations. Um, we have plenty of time for questions, and I believe we have mics coming around. Yes, one mic here and another mic there. That's great. So if, you, uh, if you're asking a question, please wait for a mic so we can, um, so your question will be recorded for all posterity. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, I have two questions. Hold, hold, hold on for the mic. I have two questions. First of all, what role do the secular population who has no religion play in, in your Abrahamic family theories? And two, yesterday, Donald Trump said he thinks there should be two separate countries, Israel and Palestine. Um, that seems to me to be inconsistent with the theory of 
Abrahamic religion that where everyone's one. And do you agree with him? Again, um, uh, we are all seculars. I don't think that many people actually are believers and we should not call ourselves religious or believers or followers of anybody if still there are people killed anywhere in the world, not in Israel and Palestine. And I also don't believe in solutions that come from the top. You have to create the space for any solution to, uh, to be implemented and embraced by people. The element that is, being, is, uh, is missing from all the talks and, and the agreements, Israel-Palestine mainly have like an archive of agreements, is that the people were not included and the root causes of the conflict has not been addressed. And the fact that this is a conflict involves narratives entrenched in 5,000 years uh, are not being uh, also uh, um, answered. And I think most of what's happening now has to do with the uh, sense of insecurity, the existential question for both, and the fact that the collective traumas ha have not been uh, addressed. So I think whether we are seculars, uh, whether we are Muslims, Christians, Jews, or non-believers, God bless Obama, we, uh, we have to, to find a path beyond politics, to find a place to live. And I don't care at the end of the day if it's one state or two states, as long as I will live uh, in a state of dignity. Other questions? Yes. You, yes, you. Um, my question is a little more vague, um, but given that we're at an academic institution that focuses on the academic study of religion, I was wondering like, um, what can institutions and schools like that do to include those excluded voices, such as the Yazidis were women, um, and just human experiences of violence and trauma um, while still being in a highly academic um, and research-focused setting? <laughs> sure. Um. I think one thing that needs to happen still in, um, in academic institutions is to change our idea of what texts are. I know um, we talk about that, but it's, we still have this idea that I'm not working, I'm sorry, that I'm not working with text, but you know, address is a text. You know, and, and when you're dealing with oral Cultures that have oral societies don't write their stories in books. The Yazidis don't have a holy book. They tell their stories through storytellers, through music, through dresses. And as long as we don't allow those as texts to enter into our academies, they won't be included. So there has to be a way of changing what we receive as being textual studies in our institutions. That's, that's um, absolutely central. Um, there has to be a place in which story and storytelling is elevated to the level of scripture, because for many places it is. Um, there has to be, uh, I think, an, an element of listening um, and, and openness and deconstruction. And I also would say, you know, one of the largest communities of, of Mandeans from Iraq is in Worcester, Massachusetts. You know, there uh, go to Dearborn, Michigan. There's 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 uh, Yazidis in in Nebraska. You know, um, cultural pluralism is here. 
You know, you don't have to go to Iraq to, in fact, I haven't been able to find the Mandeans in the Middle East. <laughs> I have to go to Worcester in San Antonio where they're doing their baptismal rites in the, in the Guadalupe River. So um, rethinking this idea also that these voices are somewhere far away. These voices are here. And to, be, to look for them and to invite them and to listen to them. And I think what I said is to let them set the terms. That's what, that's what I'm, don't, this idea that, that, that marginalized voices should just be a, um, a, a token place, this has to change. They have to participate in mm -hmm. changing the dynamic of how we talk and listen to one another. Yeah, I, I would also challenge you as uh, residents here and students to look at um, narratives that unites rather than divides. Uh, the, the revival of historic narratives that brings people together is important, but also it, it is important to challenge the narratives that came after, you know, the post-colonial narratives. Uh, we need to look, we need to liberate the texts and, um, and the values of religions from the post-colonial era. Yes. Um, I received an MTS in 1976, and I came here because I was so disturbed by the story of Abraham, always had been, and so I wanted to come and study the Abrahamic religion. So I have more of a commentary and then to see what you say about it. And I've also written a book, Abraham on Trial, The Social Legacy of Biblical Myth, because it's the social aspects that I'm concerned about. And what struck me when I was here, <laughs> is the story is all, first there's a male image God, then there's Abraham, and someone asked the question, where was Sarah, where was the, so it was clear that the son belonged to Abraham in a way he did not belong to Sarah. And it all has to do, and in the Bible and in the Quran, it's about seed. The men have the seed, the men plant the seed. I was actually told that when I asked my mother, mm. how, are baby, how do babies come around? And people in my generation were told that, the daddy plants the seed, which figures women as the nurturers. And in fact, the nurturers, the vessels, and a US senator two years ago said women are just the vessels. Goodness. And then I was at the National Basilica in Washington, DC, and on the pulpit, it says the word, which of course means Jesus, the word is the seed of God. So this, and we talk about women as barren or fertile. We talk about insemination. Our words are configuring the way we think about gender. And I think people do not put that in the context with religion because one's about the spirit and one's about nature. And I think it's about time we do. And I'm so glad you raised the issue. And I wonder what you think about, you know, what I just said about the, ocean, the idea of the seed being so, um, prevalent and all the lineages and of course the most valuable thing that Abraham would sacrifice would be his son because he's the one that would pass on the lineage. One last little thing I want to say. I was just in Tibet and I bought a book by the Dalai Lama. He has written a very short book, Appeal to the World about world peace. He says we've got to get rid of religions and nationalism. They're divisive, they lead to war, and we've got to start thinking about secular ethics of compassion and caring and forgiveness and so forth 
and we are one planet, one small human race, and that's it. I wouldn't give up uh, religion. I, I, I come from feminist <laughs> inclusive political activism, and I do believe that the, the politics of exclusion has put us in a place where we are at now, and it's time to call everybody inside the tent, which Hajar and Sarah did, and never been recognized for that. Yeah. All right, other question. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, my question goes to Professor Montel, but feel free to uh, join the answer. Uh, as the other two speakers, from what they say, I deduct that we have to reach out to people to find a solution to uh, peace, which is uh, a continuous peace, not just a political side. So my question is that, based on your personal experience, both in um, service in politics and in academia, what is the real solution to reach out people, get around the politics, reach out to people, and then let the politicians apply this one? Because from what I have seen, I'm 35 years old, and last 30 years, um, I grow in Turkey, it is heavily politicized community. And from what I see, that there is only pressure on one side, siege, economical pressure, political pressure, fund cutting, and the other side takes its time and relax around the political solution. So what is your suggestion to bring up real political solution to reach out people? Well, I'm depending a lot in our own country uh, in the Me Too movement and the women's revolution, which is going to express itself in the November 6th election, which is the only way you can really make any impact on the men uh, who aren't doing their job. Um, I've got to the point, uh, and I'm 81 now, where I would just as soon have women in charge of everything. <laughs> Truly. Um, men have a lot to learn about the management of power and, and responsibility in a community. Um, so, uh, and I'm really serious, I have li very limited income, but I'm spending it, I'm sending it to a number of, you know, candidates around the country. Um, because uh, we, do, we do need to mobilize in this country uh, and get um, far more women, uh, also at the state level, state legislatures, but also in the House and in the Senate. Uh, and uh, we, we need to find an effective way to stand up to buffoonery, which is really uh, what our government is uh, engaged in now. Um, in the meantime, we can still work to uh, tell stories, uh, sh uh, share images, uh, recover some history of, of moments where Muslims, Christians, Jews, and others, you know, uh, the Abrahamic is not meant to be exclusive. Uh, uh, I, I focus on Abraham because uh, there are a lot of nuclear weapons in the Abrahamic family. And so uh, it, it gets my attention. But our, our operation, uh, operating modus vivendi is that every, every human being is precious, uh, regardless of identity, religion, or lack of religion. And uh, so uh, 
I, I, I focus on what seems to be the most dangerous in terms of the largest number of people. But uh, uh, the, embraces, the embrace is for all people, all God's children, including the ones that don't like, don't like God. Hi, um, my name is Ghazi. I'm um, a student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I joined the School of Education because I'm very interested in social-emotional learning, so building empathy and love within communities at a very young age um, so that children can grow up to be empathetic individuals. I happened to be in Hebron uh, two months ago, just traveling over there uh, with the privilege of my British passport because I'm Pakistani and I couldn't have it gone on a Pakistani passport. Um, again, Hebron, the, where Abraham is buried. Um, from my own eyes, I saw bottles of urine lying on the floor thrown by settlers um, on the first floor on, um, and those targeting the Palestinian shopkeepers um, on the ground floor. Um, and sp speaking to Palestinian shopkeepers and speaking to um, the locals in those areas, you can see how real that divide is and how Abraham has managed to divide these two communities to an extent that it seems like there's no um, reconciliation. My question is that at a point when two communities, um, at a point when we have two communities where, uh, which are not at an equal footing at all and where there is an obvious oppressor and, and oppressed, is there any room or is, is the word dialogue even an appropriate word to use here? Because um, both the communities aren't on an equal footing. So is that even a dialogue that we're considering? Uh, depend, depending on how we define power. Um, I am a Paulo Freire uh, follower, and in his uh, pedagogy of the oppressed, when he said that the greatest humanistic and historic um, uh, task of the oppressed is to liberate themselves and in the process liberate the other, he completely changed the, the way we look at power. In Palestine, it's a matter of access rather than power. Again, I am very proud of many Palestinians who have been in, in a room full of lions and they've managed to eat them up. Uh, it's, not, it's not about uh, uh, what the politics say that you can have or you cannot have. It's about what you think and what you work on getting and having and presenting. So in, in Palestine, most of my work is about redefining that. That doesn't mean that I am delusioned about the fact that as a peace activist, I need to apply for a permit and go to work as a consultant uh, with Israeli and Palestinian organizations. Um, but this is a compromise that I'm willing to do in order to continue that kind of path. I don't think that it's going to be the only path, but I do believe that this is what's in my forte and what I can do now, and this is the responsibility I'm taking uh, seriously, and this is what gives me power. Um, i just like to, I'd like to add to that, the, the idea, and Huda and I are very close, and, and this notion of who has power and changing the idea of who holds power is so central to, to conflict transformation, I would say, in, in the Middle East because, first of all, we often talk about to have power is to stay. You know, if yes, you manage salute. to stay, you don't have to, st 
have any political power. You don't have to say anything. You don't have, the, the, the fact of staying put is in itself a kind of power mm. which is enormous. And, and I think those of us who have managed to stay um, also know that, that it's most often the people that we respect, it's not because they say something or they have accomplished something, it's in who they are in their being, you know? It's something that you wreck an integrity or a power or a compassion that has somehow survived everything. And that's power. That's, that's one person in a room of a thousand, which somehow they've managed to, I don't even know the, I, I can't even think of the word, but, but when you see it, you know it, right? And, and so I to think- be equal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think that that's, I would just agree a million times with what you said, that, that changing the idea of who has power is so, and what power means is really important. Oh, as I, as I heard the previous questions, my question changed. I'm a pre-Holocaust Israeli family, and like any of my generation, we have our dead in my family, and the, the trauma goes around, and it goes more than 30 years. But we were talking about religion, and the Abrahamic religion, and then there is it, another abomination called the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is a sorry tradition of murder, mayhem, and, and uh, disaster. And that's the only Judeo-Christian tradition. The term is used like the term of Abrahamic, and I would like the comments, and I like the first two speakers. Uh, the term is always used to exclude, from my experience, because religiously, it is ridiculous. Uh, the, the Muslims go to Muhammad, the Jews to Moses, and to the rabbis from the Mishnahic period, and the Christians go to Jesus. And none of them go to Abraham, although it is in the mythology of all three. And whenever the term is used, so you use Judeo-Christian tradition to exclude the Muslims. And I'm Israeli, I want to defend my country, but this is ridiculous. And you use the Abrahamic uh, tradition in order to exclude the, the Yazdis, people like me. I'm a Jew very much so, but totally not religious. And who am I in this uh, dialogue? And who are the mm -hmm. Tibetans and all the Chinese in this country? And I, I would like uh, your comments about the fact that this, I think, abominable synthesis that, uh, I, I apologize, but it exists very well in the National Cathedral in Washington, but not in the Middle East, mm -hmm. where, where the Christians are living in hordes and the Yazdis are living in hordes. And Nazareth used to be Christian once, it's not yeah. no more. Yeah. Uh, I think that I, I would like to hear your comments about is, it, is my understanding correct that these terms are used to exclude, not to include? Well, we've had a lot of discussions with, uh, during the, the day with some very distinguished uh, scholars who share the same uh, compassion uh, that you reflect. Um, there was a very interesting paper today about how the term Judeo-Christian became popular in the 1930s in, uh, as people were seeing the impact of the growth of Nazism. Uh, yeah. 
Um, and I have some friends, contemporary Jewish friends, who, who, who dislike that term uh, very, very strongly. Um, my conception, uh, and I'm, I, might just, I'm, I might be a helpless little political psychologist, but the image of, uh, of uh, Isaac and Ishmael coming together to bury their father in Hebron is a powerful one. Uh, it doesn't survive the politics and, and war making, um, but you have to have something to work with. And it's not meant to exclude uh, anyone, but it's to focus on one of the most deadly conflicts that's always a threat, including a nuclear threat. Uh, so I sympathize with you. I sympathize with you as uh, a Jew who uh, chooses not to, to practice, but are precious in the eyes of God, whether or not you like God. Um, uh, and um, we're working in a very difficult area. And um, uh, there's no, no simple solution, but we have to keep at it. As Huda said, she's, she is uh, in a position where she can feed a network of ordinary citizens, Palestinians and Israeli Jews, uh, who, who have hope for the future and, and to nourish that network. Uh, and, uh, hope th and hope that uh, we get an American president uh, that won't sabotage Middle East diplomacy, uh, but keep, keep hope alive through the network of human beings uh, who will be there long after he uh, inshallah is gone. May, may I add something to this conversation briefly because I feel it's incumbent upon me to, to share what this conference has been about in some of the private sessions. So first of all, I hope you've heard tonight that this is not a choir celebrating the category of the Abrahamic. We've heard some very powerful critiques made of the Abrahamic. And uh, in the all day today, we've had some very, we've had vibrant conversations asking the very question you have, which is to what degree does this category serve to include and exclude? And it is, it is, it is an ambivalent category, as is the Judeo-Christian. And we had Helen Gaston here, who's just finished a book on the, the history of the Judeo-Christian tradition, I mean the category of the Judeo-Christian, speak about how that category relates to the Abrahamic, the category of the Abrahamic religion. So this, is, this has been front and center at our, of our conversation. Um, and uh, if anything, I think I've left the, the last 24 hours more skeptical about the category of the Abrahamic than I did, um, uh, than, I, than I anticipated. Now, I'm sorry, Huda, Stephanie, did you want to respond to this? Um, I want to say that, that I think as I explained at the beginning of my presentation, I have a lot invested in the category of Abraham in terms of my colleagues, in terms of the circles, in terms of my mentor. My whole world has been the category of Abraham. And, and, and yet, I think Huda and I can both speak to the fact that when you've suffered and witnessed as much loss as we have, you become very blunt. You know, I think we've become very blunt. And, and in my experience in the region, 
Things change because everybody, things don't change because everybody wants things to get better, but nobody's willing to give anything up. And to sit here and publicly go against basically my entire <laughs> life, mentors, colleagues, is, I mean, I've been in a panic for like three weeks. <laughs> Let's be honest here. <laughs> but, but if we're not willing to risk something mm -hmm. in order to move forward, nothing's going to change. Yeah. So, um, so I appreciate the conference very, very much. And um, I, I appreciate uh, your notion that we have to be willing to uh, ask questions and question categories and give something up. I, I would to add just like that my relationship to Abraham is just like what the Islam I love and embrace is saying about him. It's just an ordinary guy who went through <laughs> a journey of exploration and discovery. He, he should not be owned by someone. And in Islam, he, he and all the prophets are, do not get to a place of holiness that we have to worship them. Then we will become. So I, I love Ibrahim in the Quran because he was the one who was asking all these complicated questions, trying to find answer with, with the sun or the, the sun as the sun and, and the moon and the earth, and then trying to find an, the answers for some complicated life he was leading. And he came through discovering God. So I don't think, uh, I think the exclu exclusiveness comes with the fact that. Uh, we all try to own Ibrahim, and Ibrahim is a free human being. Um, thank you. Um, my name is uh, Ghassan Haddad, uh, and I could really relate to uh, stories from each of the presenters. Um, I think one of the strongest um, points that I've heard is this need for dialogue within communities. I, I did work in Gaza from 2002 to 2004 in a very difficult period of transition within the authority, within Fatah. Um, and I was working in the community outside of work and sport. And I'm currently finishing a book on the history of the Palestine Olympic Committee from the British Mandate period. And it's... Um, it's a very interesting um, sort of journey where I've taken a position in an epilogue quite strongly against the BDS process in sports and the push from the Palestinian side. Because having worked inside the organizational structures, having served on um, even a, an Arab board for um, several years, uh, I never saw leadership that was really purposeful for the constituents, which was young children who just wanted a space. Um, and so I would be very curious, um, you know, in the Olympic world, in the Olympic space, we allegedly operate in this secular domain that brings people together. And we, yet we bring all our baggage into it um, <clears throat> and complicate uh, and this is not to be laudatory of the Olympic movement. There's plenty to criticize there. Um, but we often complicate even those spaces where we're supposed to function structurally and put some of those issues at the door. And we seem not to be able to do it, particularly um, right now on the Palestinian side of the equation. 
but not necessarily, I think, for the reasons that we state we do. Uh, I, I tend to believe that these are more personal agendas right now. Um, and so I'm just very curious. Um, for me, um, Abraham, I actually I keep an icon of the table of Abraham in my living room um, as a reminder to my children um, of the hospitality concept. Mm. Um, and I believe very strongly that certain spaces like tables, like fields of play and sport, must remain neutral spaces where you can park politics at the door and you build human relations. Right. Uh, and that's not, not to be a marketing pitch for what the Olympic model tries to sell, but a concept that we need to preserve and protect certain spaces. So I'm curious um, if any of you have an understanding or comment with respect to how this dialogue moves into other you know, polemical areas right now that we're observing um, you know, within this conflict and how people bring um, you know, their personal agendas into this conflict under other umbrellas. Um, I am not a fan of, um, of exclusion. I, and, and you know, when uh, the American administration decided to cut off the, uh, the Palestinian people-to-people uh, -people programs, there were many people who cheered that uh, because, uh, good, the, the normalization didn't work. And, and um, Greenblatt uh, tweeted something about uh, kids playing sports uh, is, a, is essential, important, etc. element of the peace process. And there, where the normalization and BDS uh, uh, logic comes uh, into the picture. Because if we think that kids from Ghazi and uh, Tel Aviv can play uh, soccer uh, 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 because we just made them as facilitator check out their national identity or religious identity out of the door, then we are delusioned. Uh, any constructive form of dialogue that would lead to some sort of change has to be difficult and should not, we shouldn't put um, what the term that says put lipstick on the pig's okay. mouth. <laughs> and I, I, I think this is a very simplistic way of looking at, uh, at the dialogue projects in general. Dialogue is hard, really hard. But I'm witnessing that the, the internal dialogue is even harder. Because sometimes when we come to the room, we try to be, we, we wear the hat of those who represent us on the, on the upper level. And so we try to behave, you know, we become diplomatic in, in the room. But I don't think that if we uh, pretend that the kids that we recruit to participate in sports program, um, they check out their uh, part of their identity at the door, uh, this is going to be effective, we, we are delusional. Uh, I, one third of the network is sports organizations, and that's why BDS and anti-normalization groups attack the network because of these programs. And uh, I do believe that they don't know the whole truth because no kid comes inside the room, like even Seeds of Peace when they travel to Maine. The Palestinian kids, uh, sorry for using the term kids, youth, um, 
come out with a stronger sense of identity than when they came in. And, and this is not being uh, given enough uh, uh, space on the, on the public arena. All you hear is, oh, it's just nice. Uh, women uh, from Beit Safafa are playing with women from Tel Aviv basketball, and they are, uh, you know, they, they are cheering, the mothers are cheering, etc., etc. It's much more complicated than that. I, I, I don't think it's wise uh, to separate the politics and uh, emotional and the social and the psycholo psychological connection uh, to, uh, uh, from dialogue, because then it's not going to be dialogue. They enjoyed it. I, I, I flew with, uh, with the kids who came back from uh, this camp in Maine, and, and they, were, they were excited. Yeah. And they were aware of the fact that, uh, that there is a conflict. They were aware yeah, of the, the, the Israeli the the uh, yeah. team passed by. They were excited. Yeah. They, were. Mm -hmm. they were excited. Mm -hmm. And they were not recruited. They asked for it, and they went to seven screens. Yeah, we do a lot of training for them before going, but we don't ask them to check any part of their identity out of the door. Uh -huh. If I could just clarify, um, my remarks, uh, I'm in agreement uh, 100%, and we ran a rowing program in Gaza for boys and girls, and we literally had to shut the door yeah. um, you know, to numbers of people who wanted to be involved. Yeah. Um, my remarks, I think, you know, are more with respect to leaders who need to park their personal political struggles at the door so that children can discuss their identity issues and how they relate in that space. Uh, and um, yeah. so I would just ask, I suppose, if you have any remarks with respect to that um, issue. Um, yeah. And what that exclusion is doing to impact, you know, children and youth. Yeah, we're we're living it now. I mean, one of the things that is affecting our sense of identity as Palestinians, collectively speaking, is the fragmentation, not just the geographical uh, fragmentation of Palestine, or what will be Palestine at some point. It's also the political fragmentation. And, and, and you are always asked to be affiliated with one or another uh, political uh, side to have a voice. And, and this has uh, uh, completely ruined our liberty to be strong, uh, stronger when it comes to our sense of identity. I come from a place that we live in a world that is leaderless. I wouldn't call them leaders. So from that basis, I see myself in, in, a, in the room with youth as they are the leaders and they are the ones who are teaching me rather than I am teaching them. And I see the same uh, with women. It, it, so it's, and, and in that way I am a leader, but there is no one in the world now, and not just in Israel and Palestine, who is leading by that concept. So we are living in a leaderless world and God help us all. <laughs> Maybe we can take one more question and then um, this. Yes. Uh, I guess I'm addressing you, Professor Monville. 
you spoke about um, uh, the encouragement of places like Esalen, where there's um, dialogue, if you want to call it that, where it was very successful to have people come together and be truly understand and have empathy come out of it. And um, you spoke of another example, too. Uh, but I almost felt that you, you, I think it was you that used the term failure of imagination. I wondered if you had any imaginative thoughts about how these small circles um, could be expanded. I mean, is there some kind of framework you could imagine where these could be multiplied somehow? Or I think of um, political movements where I guess you'd call them cells where they mm -hmm. um, proliferate um, through small groups, but then eventually it forms a larger whole. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to ch uh, change conflicts. Um, this year I've been working, uh, I've been very fortunate to get a very generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation to do a project called uh, The Civil War at 150 Years Deep Wounds Yet to Heal. And what I've been able to do uh, in two-day workshops uh, is to bring uh, some wonderful historians uh, and, and other activists who are trying to see how we can uh, come to terms with the unacknowledged uh, and unhealed wounds from the Civil War. Uh, uh, and. Uh, we, uh, we are coming up with some very interesting projects. For instance, I'm going to be proposing uh, that uh, my, my group, my uh, uh, colleagues, uh, uh, get two, two, two congressmen, who are very close friends of mine, to propose that uh, the Congress fund a, a memorial to all the people killed who died in the Civil War, north, south, black, and white. Uh, the only rationale for it is that they were all precious people. Precious if you believe in God, in the eyes of God. If you don't believe in God, precious anyway. Uh, there, is a, there is an underlying theme to that, which is to finally tell white Southerners that they are not garbage. One of the tragedies of war is that the winners can take a lot of casualties, but there's something about winning mm -hmm. and getting on with your life. Losing is very, very painful, and the winners don't give a shit. Um, uh, there are, and uh, we're, also, we're also going to support an African-American professor of criminal justice who was a prosecutor but who has been putting all of his energy into teaching incarcerated African-Americans. He calls his student, students in, uh, in a portion of Pennsylvania. He teaches at Pitt. He's te uh, and I've encouraged him to uh, develop a major program that, uh, that my university has agreed to sponsor uh, for funding. Uh, and he wants to develop a program for, for providing graduate degrees to incarcerated black students. 
Uh, he also wants to focus on the moral responsibility of these incarcerated black students have to the children they've brought into the world, uh, which is a father, uh, in my case as a father, it's, it's a very important task. So then this has come uh, as a pro product of a very deep dialogue in two-day workshops. Uh, so you can come up with plans. Um, it's, uh, we wouldn't presume to have the same kind of creative impact on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because the leadership is, is, is non-existent on both sides. What we have to do is continue to support Huda, support uh, Stephanie in her work, uh, and uh, keep the faith with communities. Uh, but um, there are there are ways you can be creative. You have to take take a, a, a history of the conflict you're dealing with in all of its dimensions, uh, and consult with people who know a lot, and then build alliances to take initiatives. Um, that's what I'm. Uh, that's what I'm doing. I feel pretty confident about the Civil War project. I'm not very active in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now, but I, I'll never leave it, and it'll never leave me. Uh, and uh, we'll just keep at it. Thank you. Lord. Thank you all for your questions, and thank you again, Huda, Joe, Stephanie. So grateful for your wisdom. Um, Dean Hempton would like to say a few closing remarks. Yeah, these will be very few. Um, but um, uh, just to reiterate, thanks to Charlie for um, uh, organizing the conference of the last uh, few days and for, um, um, for all those who helped, including Liz, bringing um, things together for this evening. I'm especially grateful to our panelists. Thank you for doing such a wonderful job. Um, what I took away from it, I think, you know, and reflects a bit back on my own uh, background in, in, in Belfast is um, the need for kind of on-the-ground reality checks um, and um, not just reality checks with men with weapons, but reality checks with um, uh, women and children as well. So how, how do identities get um, constructed um, as, uh, was a big theme. Mm -hmm. How are they transmitted through uh, stories, music, and art? And um, uh, uh, was another big th theme. Uh, what role does religion play in the construction of those identities, especially identities created by notions of exclusion? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, what, what price do we pay for that? And how can a more inclusive humanity be nurtured? And what gets in the way uh, of it? And so I'm really grateful for um, those questions being uh, stimulated, thought about. There are no easy answers to many of these things, but I really did feel it was an honest and rooted um, uh, uh, conversation based on um, uh, real experiences with real people on the ground. So I'm grateful. So um, we look forward um, to seeing you again at our upcoming RPP uh, colloquium sessions and other events this year. The next uh, Religions and Practices of Peace colloquium will take place on October 18th and will feature uh, Lily Ye, an artist and activist 
who will present uh, on the subject of urban alchemy, post-conflict healing, and art transforms. So this session will be moderated by Melissa Bartholomew, the Divinity School's Racial Justice Fellow, and joining us as discussant will be Terry Tempest-Williams, uh, the Divinity School's Writer-in-Residence. So Lily Ye will also hold, host an interactive workshop the, the, the next morning, that's the morning of October 19th. So space is limited uh, for that, uh, so please RSVP online in advance if you would. Um, this year, um, the RPP, um, uh, through its Sustainable Peace Initiative, is hosting Sustainable Peace Cafes here at the Divinity School, the first of which will be held next week on October, four, uh, on October 4th. Designed by our students in RPP, the Sustainable Peace Cafes will provide space for people from across Harvard and the public to connect with others committed to advancing sustainable peace and to share wisdom and practices from their respective spiritual and cultural traditions and life experiences. Again, for more information on the RSVP, please visit the RPP web website at the Harvard Divinity School. Please do um, um, check out that website. There's a tremendous amount of materials and uh, um, uh, uh, videos of previous sessions, um, uh, book recommendations, and, um, uh, and upcoming events. Um, so if you haven't yet done so, be sure to join the RPP and the CSWR mailing list uh, to receive announcements of our future activities. Um, so now, uh, just a final announcement. If you're not a participant in the CSWR's conference on Abrahamic religions, and if you have RSVP'd prior to this evening, we welcome, in an inclusive fashion, <laughs> for you to uh, join us now for dinner, uh, sponsored by the RPP Colloquium in the Brown Room, uh, down at the other end of the hall. But if you are an elite participant um, uh, in the uh, CSWR's Abrahamic Religions Conference, please head outside to the shuttle on Francis Avenue for your off-campus dinner. Um, so this is a parting of the ways, I'm afraid. Um, 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 a, a limit to our... Uh, but, um, so thank you so much for coming, and thank you for... Our